Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, we discover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hi, this is Caroline and Nicola at She Wrote Too. And this month we're focusing on the American poet Amy Lowell who was born in 1874, so that makes this the 150th anniversary of her birth. She was an American poet in the Imagist movement, which we're going to talk about a bit later on. So what we're going to do is talk about Amy Lowell's life, about Imagism, but the main bulk of this podcast is going to be looking at her actual poetry. So we've both chosen a couple of poems that particularly spoke to us, and we're going to read those out and then say a little bit about them. Yes, so although I wouldn't claim to have the skills of a a trained actor when it comes to reading poetry, you know, we'll give it a go because we can try as hard as anyone else. And the point is that actually this whole movement was about being accessible and available to a large audience, wasn't it? So Amy, yes, 1874 to 1925 she lived. So she didn't make a ripe old age, really. She was from a wealthy family in New England, in the US, and then she came to London, which is where she did quite a lot of her influential poetry. She really loved reading and writing from a young age, and her mother tutored her, and then she was privately educated as well. But a lot of her work was largely self-taught. I'd read that she wasn't allowed to go to college because her family didn't think that that was appropriate for a woman. Yes. But she was quite a high achiever in her work. She was a a poet, obviously, but she was an editor, a speaker, a writer and a campaigner. She was quite outspoken. She may have ruffled a few feathers with her strong opinions and her non-compliance with the role expected of females at the time, although, of course, that was changing. There is something that we're going to discuss, which is about the hostility that Amy faced in her life from people who objected to her non-compliance. But we only really want to touch on that because we don't want those stories to define Lowell's life. She deserves to have attention for what she achieved. And there had actually been quite a deliberate campaign to try and take the subject off her work and onto some other issues. She was a very, what's the word that I'm looking for, extrovert character. She had money 
and she made money. She was very commercially successful. And when she travelled to England, for example, she brought her own car over from the States, which was much bigger than people were used to seeing here. And it was maroon. So it was, it was, it drew attention. It was unusual. And another non-compliant part of her life was that she had a long-term relationship with the actress Ada Dwyer Russell, who she was with from 1909, and they were together for her whole life. And much of her poetry was inspired by her her love interest in Ada, her long-term partner. And they had a relationship which they kept quite closely guarded, actually. Lowell wrote a lot of poetry and letters to Russell and they were left with her when when she died and they she'd left strict instructions to destroy everything so that people didn't get to know their story. Yeah, I've encountered that before with Sophia Jex Blake who was one of the pioneering female doctors in the UK. She had written a diary or some memoirs I think and her long-term partner destroyed that. So it's it's kind of frustrating for us looking back we want to know about their thoughts and their lives but yeah. obviously for them that was the preference and it was for her uh, yes her choice for us not to know yeah and for that to be private between the two of them frustrating as that yeah. is yeah <laughs> so yes she was this bigger larger than life type character she didn't dress in a conventional way she very often wore men's clothes if she wanted to although Caroline, tell me about the the sort of outfits that she would wear when she went out. Yeah, she apparently, um, when she had occasion to wear evening dress, she'd be wearing these great billowing outfits, sort of feminine, but really, really extra, so like gold spangles on them and things. And some of her male critics said that this was unbecoming. Mm. And the point was that she didn't have any reason to be becoming whatsoever. She wanted to wear all this fancy stuff and just enjoy life. She didn't need to look any particular way for men to admire. No. And she smoked cigars, which she used to describe in quite a cheeky way. She had quite a good sense of humour, but she said she used to say in company that it was like undressing a lady taking her cigars (laughs) out of her packet, which would have been fairly controversial, but probably got her some attention and and would have been very amusing. But she wanted to bring poetry to a more accessible level, which I have to say I'm quite a fan of that idea. And her poems were very successful. They were commercially successful and were often in the bestseller lists, which was quite an achievement. What with being really good at what she did, quite extrovert, a lesbian and also quite a large woman... She really found herself on the wrong side of patriarchy. Mm. She didn't go along with a a feminine ideal. Not quiet, not small, not taking up very little space, and being quite good at drawing attention to herself. So there was a cost for that, wasn't there? Mm. We're not going to dwell on the idea that Lowell was quite a large woman, but I think it is worth mentioning. It's part of her non-compliance, isn't Mm. it? Yeah, it is. And I suppose at that time that she was active, the ideas of weight were starting to change because it had been previously seen as something the rich would be bigger because they were 
had so much luxurious food and and it was quite a masculine thing as well you know these big powerful men but it was shifting towards a much more slender silhouette for women um, especially as we move on to the 1920s when you have the flapper look which was very straight up and down so there were diet products available people were starting to think about not wanting to be a larger person and some Biographers and commentators have said that Amy Lowell had some sort of glandular disorder which meant that it was impossible for her to lose weight. I don't know how much evidence there really is for that because in a way saying that she had a glandular disorder it's like saying well it wasn't her fault, it wasn't some flaw in her personality that made her eat lots of food and that kind of is suggesting that being overweight is a flaw. It and joins only, in the disapproval, yeah, doesn't it? It's only excusable if you have a medical reason, <laughs> when perhaps she just loved eating loads of lovely, delicious, <laughs> nutritious food. Um, and yeah. there's a great quotation from her, which was in a letter to a friend, where she said, Only when I recollect how short is life, how fleeting, do I reflect that it makes very little difference whether a skeleton was once fat or thin. This consoles me greatly, and I eat on, unmoved and unmoving. Mm, so good for so her. That gives us a bit of a hint, doesn't it? She yeah. she was only five foot. Yeah. So being quite small, mm. I suppose if you do eat a lot, then it it would show up. But yeah. uh, but it was just used as a as a, a thing to sort of attack her, another mm. thing. But that type of behaviour she displayed in lots of ways in that her a lot of her behaviour could have been described as masculine and therefore mm. treading on the toes of. One of the poems that we're going to look at is about a garden-ish. But she was a very good gardener. She did have a garden. She knew a lot about it. And that would have actually been seen as quite a masculine domain, having control of and deciding what goes on in nature. It was quite unusual for women to take control like that, like she did, and have great knowledge of gardening and so she did it in all sorts of ways, you know, by having her car and having her wearing different clothes and lots of her behaviour could have been seen as masculine, which is might might be one of the reasons why she was subject to so much criticism from the men. So there was a particular type of poet that Amy was, Caroline. Are you going there to was, yes. Yeah. She fitted in, at least when she started writing poetry, as part of the Imagist movement. And this was a movement that emerged as part of modernism. There was this shift away from the old sentimentality of the Victorian era. It was apparent in art, literature. This was a shift away from the old Victorian sentimentality and romanticism. In architecture and art, you would have things like a more abstract look. Within literature, you had things like stream of consciousness. This was all part of this modern outlook. So the Imagist movement fitted into that. And this was largely centred around poet Ezra Pound, whom we've probably heard of, rather famous. We're not going to talk too much about him because it's not the Ezra Pound show. This is about Amy Lowell, (laughs) isn't it? But he was the one who sort of defined what was meant by imagism. And he urged poets to avoid too much sentimentality of the subject matter. The poem should be clear and focused. You had to convey the essence of whatever subject you were talking about. 
and you had to choose your language really carefully. It was supposed to be accessible to the general reader. You weren't supposed to use archaic, arty-farty terms. <laughs> um, it was supposed to be as one would speak in everyday life. You had to be very precise in your language. And that was then supposed to create a vivid image within the mind of the reader. Normally it was free verse, so then the poem could flow organically and flexibly, and it needed to be concise and lucid. So some imagist poems were really, really short, just a couple of lines. And one of the ones that I'm going to read by Amy Lowell later on is pretty short. You weren't supposed to do overblown metaphors or use cliches or embellish it too much. And Ezra Pound wrote a manifesto for this, titled A Few Don'ts by an Imagist, which has an E on the end of it. <laughs> and just saying a few don'ts, to me that already sounds really prescriptive and rather negative, and it implies that he just wanted to be in charge of this movement. Yes, not only is it negative while sort of claiming to be moving away from the a strict form of poetry, but the, the whole don'ts thing yeah. is this idea of him actually just sort of wanting it for himself to be a badge next to his name. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Ezra Pound anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't saying, go out and be creative, write poetry. He was saying, don't do this. Mm. And so it was about rejecting tradition, really, this imagist movement. And as Amy Lowell began writing poetry, she did adhere to the principles of this. But understandably, she also wanted to experiment with imagery and form, be more elaborate sometimes, and to develop her poetry. So sometimes she used longer structures, she had more expansive language in some of her poems, and she incorporated metaphor and symbolism more than was considered acceptable by the hardline imagists. She didn't always stick to the everyday themes either. She might bring in some classical allusions sometimes, references to mythology, and that was not good in Ezra Pound's mind. Mm. So we are going to be talking about In a Garden, which is one of her poems that does fit into the imagist idea. This was in the first imagist anthology, which was published in 1914. So Pound evidently did approve of this one. And we're going to read that now and look into it. Okay. This is Inner Garden by Amy Lowell. Gushing from the mouths of stone men to spread at ease under the sky in granite-lipped basins, where iris dabble their feet and rustle to a passing wind, the water fills the garden with its rushing. In the midst of the quiet of close-clipped lawns, damp smell of ferns in tunnels of stone, where trickle and plush the fountains, marble fountains yellowed with much water. Splashing down moss-tarnished steps, it falls the water, and the air is throbbing with it, with its gurgling and running, with its leaping and deep cool murmur. And I wished for night and you. I wanted to see you in the swimming pool, white and shining in the silver-flecked water, while the moon rode over the garden, high in the arch of night, and the scent of the lilacs was heavy with stillness, night and the water, and you in your whiteness, bathing. Okay. As I say, no voice actor, I'm afraid, but it's one of those poems by Amy Lowell where you can't really help but notice that it's got some fairly erotic undertones going on. Quite a few of her poems were written for 
her lover, her, her partner. And they were quite openly, I think, which is probably one of the, the things that she was non-compliant about. They were often hinting at, if not directly talking about, lesbian love. And I think this one is no exception. So I think we can see the imagist ideas in this. We have got the whole atmosphere of the garden, things like the close-clipped lawns and the scent of the ferns. Yeah, So, and we've got lots of sounds going on as well. Do you think that would have been fairly typical of the imagist movement, to be mentioning sound as well? Yes. Because it's creating a picture. Yeah, it is about creating this, not just the visual picture, but a whole experience of being within the situation. So I think the sounds do fit in well with that. Well, I think that goes along with the idea of using free verse and not going for a a metre effect, but actually still getting a rhythm from it regardless. Mm. Because where we get the sense of movement from the gushing and then the rustle, and it does does give it that rhythm. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot of movement in it. So you've got the water and it says that it plash the fountains. That's quite an unusual word. And then later on, that's reinforced by splashing down the moss-tarnished steps, which I think adds to the sensuality of the poem. Yes, absolutely. Gurgling, running, leaping, definitely movement. I wonder why she's suggesting that sense of it. It, it sort of gives it a vivacity, I suppose, mm. a sense of being alive and active. And it's clearly a love poem because it's saying, I wished for night and you. I read an article in The Guardian where it was saying how some of Lowell's poetry has been pretty much stolen. Well, not. Yeah, that, that is what they were saying. And, and we were, both, yeah, we, so we both sort of went, well, you know, when you read a poem and, and it inspires you. So one of the accusations is that D.H. Lawrence rather took on this poem and, and used it for his bathing scene in the rainbow. Mm. But, well, Caroline and I discussed this before and we're sort of of the view, or we agreed on the view, that that's not really plagiarism or, or theft. No, he didn't actually copy what she said and perhaps he was inspired by it. They were friends. They yes. were in touch with each other a lot. And I think people are going to write about similar themes sometimes. They quite often will. And... You know, there's um, the saying that all art is theft because Mm. you are inspired by the work of others. And and in fact, if I think about how, for example, art A-level is taught, (laughs) that is how it is done. You look at artists and you look at their work and you try and do work that's in the style of that Mm. person. And people naturally will be taking on ideas. So we're chucking that idea out. We don't don't agree with that. So I think there's a sense of longing in this poem in the final stanza. She's not actually observing the partner bathing, but just wishing that she was there and that she could see her in this beautiful garden at night time. So there is this idea that she's fantasising. Yes, we'll see this a bit later as well. She's quite into nakedness. So... I don't know that it has that many other aspects that I would have labelled as typically imagist. Or I think this was at the point where she was still very much within the imagist movement. I just thought it seemed a little bit more extravagant. You know, there's that pound poem where it's only sort of two lines yeah. long or something. 
But there is a bit of extravagance at the end, which you can't tell when reading it out, but there is an exclamation mark on the end, which says, you and your whiteness bathing. So it's kind of joyful and beautiful and happy. And I think that exuberance of Amy Lowell comes through in that ending. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to look at another one now, I think, is what we're doing next. Yeah, shall I go on to the other garden-themed poem? Yes, Much shorter now. This one was written in 1917 and it's called The Emperor's Garden. Once in the sultry heats of midsummer, an emperor caused the miniature mountains in his garden to be covered with white silk, that so crowned they might cool his eyes with the sparkle of snow. It's a really short imagist poem there, but I think there's quite a lot going on in it. So you've got this emperor who is living this life of opulence. He's obviously managed to construct the garden exactly the way he wanted it. He has at some point in the past had these miniature mountains built there. He can pretty much spare no expense in having his environment however he chooses it. And yet, as we find out, it's never quite good enough for him. So when it's hot, he wants it changed so that he can see this apparent snow and it's just not acceptable to his mood on that particular day. So I think there is something, a message in there about being content with what you have, that this emperor is obviously just doing things on a whim and it's never quite good enough for him. There's an interesting choice of where that he causes the mountains to be covered with white silk. He's not going to go out there and do it himself. He's got these <laughs> minions or whoever who can go and drape the silk over just as he wants it. So he can give an order and his wish will be carried out. There's also the fact that he can afford to use silk for that purpose. It's just, mm. it's quite a very frivolous thing. And yet he's got these great swathes of silk. It gives the impression that that might even be discarded. Maybe tomorrow he'll change his mind and not want the silk there anymore. And somebody will have to go out and take it off. But there, his wish is their command. Mm. So we have got criticism of this opulent, idle lifestyle and with it being set in a garden as well, you can imagine that the emperor has his enclosed garden where everything is just so. It makes you wonder what's going on outside those walls. What's the rest of his kingdom like in terms of how the people are living and surviving? We don't know what sort of ruler he is, but it just enables the reader to think about why he's living in this bubble as such. And perhaps mm. sometimes we might feel that we are as well in different ways. The beginning of this poem is almost a bit like a fairy tale. It's that word once that often yes. starts off a fairy tale. So that distances from everyday life almost makes it a, bit of a morality tale as well. He's never content, even with this unlimited wealth. So I wonder whether perhaps when it really is winter and perhaps there is snow on the mountains, will he then go and send somebody out to shovel it all off and put some flowers down or something like that? I also like the way that Amy Lowell describes him, not in the title, but in the body of the poem, as an emperor. It's not the emperor. No. He's just one among many. And that reminded me of Ozymandias. Yes, I was just <laughs> thinking that. You were probably going to just say that. Uh, <laughs> that he's going to be long gone all these miniature mountains and all that rubbish is not going to come to anything. He'll be forgotten like everybody else. Now we talked in 
the poem that we talked about before about the sensuousness of it. And I think there is some sensual imagery in this as well. You've got these mountains being covered with white silk. And I thought, is she talking about boobs? There? <laughs> <laughs> <got> Possibly. To, <laughs> yeah. We've got to the idea of this uh, perhaps a diaphanous nightgown mm. flowing over the female form. I think you can get it that does in this feature well. quite a lot mm. in, in, in many of the poems, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you have anything to add about this poem? Not particularly, only that, once again, she's looking at things from a masculine point of view, and and I suspect this is where men didn't like it, mm. that she was aware of their point of view. I suppose because she was looking at women in this maybe the same way as they were, mm. and thinking in the same way, and maybe that upset them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yes, it did remind me of Ozymandias as well for just the reasons that you said. Mm. But I don't think I've got anything to add other than the brevity of the poem doesn't mean that you can't take a lot from it, Mm. which was probably a bit of a change, wasn't it, in in poetry style? Yes, because I suppose there'd been the tradition of epic poems or perhaps shorter forms, but romanticism and this very traditional forms and just taking a small snippet to create an image in the reader's mind was what this movement was all about. Yes, I'm quite a fan of brevity so it it holds great appeal to me. I think that's really clever to be able to um, suggest all those ideas in just a few lines. Mm. Something that came up when I was researching about um, Lull's life was her relationship with other poets particularly and and some of the men really objected to her but also with H.D. Hilda Doolittle another quite eminent imagist at at the time and that just struck me as quite interesting that both of them were successfully being part of this movement which of course reflected the situation that women were finding themselves in in society. You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. Okay, so this is the artist. Why do you subdue yourself in golds and purples? Why do you dim yourself with folded silks? Do you not see that I can buy brocades in any draper's shop and that I am choked in the twilight of all these colours? How pale you would be, and startling, how quiet, but your curves would spring upward like a clear jet of flung water. You would quiver like a shot-up spray of water, You would waver and relapse and tremble, and I too would tremble, watching. Murex dyes and tinsel, and yet I think I could bear your beauty unshaded. So once again, (laughs) we go back to the, the idea of nakedness and pale flesh uncovered by fabrics. But we also get the mention of these sensuous and luxurious, I suppose, opulent fabrics and colours, gold and purple, that we would associate with royalty and grandeur. 
and something that would be a sign of luxury but she doesn't want it there no (laughs) yeah there's that reversal of ideas that the golds and purples are actually subduing the natural beauty of the body we know that Amy Lowell herself sometimes liked to dress in these really opulent things but in the, on this occasion she feels that that is dimming the beauty and it's the skin and the whiteness and the curves and the nakedness that she really wants to see. Which reminds me of the poem that we spoke yeah. about earlier. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this, I would say, f- open eroticism that she mm-hmm. is feels able to express. Oh. I mean that must have been quite bold yeah. at the time because I haven't really seen anything like this written by women at, at around that time. No. I don't think it really got talked about and she's openly talking about her lust or her sexuality mm. or her sensuality. But I think it would have been quite groundbreaking. She's also incorporating imagery of male sexuality as well. There's a lot of ejaculation imagery in this shot up spray of water yes which would have been really quite unusual for anybody to write about and publicly particularly a woman Mm. and so again I think this is one of the reasons that I wanted to look at this poem was because of her doing that Mm. because I would have been surprised if there were very many men Mm. who would have been writing so overtly yeah for, for general consumption I mean there's yes. a lot of underground stuff that was far oh yeah I'm more. sure <laughs> but this wasn't underground this no. was this was going in anthologies and mm. being published and selling well yeah and yet wasn't really raising eyebrows as far as I can see mm. from the evidence that I've seen at the time it was just accepted mm. maybe people didn't realize what she was talking about maybe <laughs> well I suppose they probably did privately but maybe they didn't want to talk about it too much then they won't be able to read it then it would be banned (laughs) i mean if you think well what year were the the lady chatterley um, that was a bit later yeah yeah lady chatterley's lover was published in 1928 yes it was later well i mean amy lowell had died by 1925 so this must have been some of the earliest type of openly erotic again she might have been inspiring people like lawrence Mm. So there you go. It reflects the, the changing times. Hmm. Let's go on to the next poem. Yeah. So this is quite a change of subject and pace, I think. This one is much more poignant, which is why I chose it. And this is called September 1918. So as you can tell from the title, this was written towards the end of the First World War. But of course, Amy Lowell wouldn't have known exactly when that was going to be over. So I'll just read this out. This afternoon was the colour of water falling through sunlight. The trees glittered with the tumbling of leaves. The sidewalks shone like alleys of dropped maple leaves, and the houses ran along them laughing out of square open windows. Under a tree in the park, two little boys, lying flat on their faces, were carefully gathering red berries to put in a pasteboard box. Someday there will be no war. Then I shall take out this afternoon and turn it in my fingers, and remark the sweet taste of it upon my palate, and note the crisp variety of its flights of leaves. Today I can only gather it and put it into my lunchbox, for I have time for nothing but the endeavour to balance myself upon a broken world. 
So really quite simply emotional. Mm. A real simplicity of language and yet almost heartbreaking. Halfway through when we get to that line, someday there will be no war. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Brings in real darkness into this beautiful poem. So we start off with an almost idyllic situation. It's obviously a really warm day, bright autumn sunshine, and these lovely images of the afternoon being the colour of water falling through sunlight. So it's a really peaceful scene. And there's these two little boys, they're just doing the innocent childhood activity of gathering some berries, lying there in the sunshine. And there's the carefree atmosphere. She talks of the buildings laughing out of the windows. And then the mood of the piece changes. Someday there will be no war. And that's a very imagist line in that it's very everyday kind of language. Nothing mm. overblown or extravagant about it at all. But it's a heartbreaking simplicity to that. Mm. And there's various things about this poem that really spoke to me. I wanted to focus on the final lines, for I have time for nothing but the endeavour to balance myself upon a broken world. And I think that's quite pertinent to us today because there's so many ways in which the world is tumultuous um, today with climate change and wars going on. And sometimes it can feel that we're totally helpless. There's nothing that we can do apart from just try to stay upright um, in this challenging situation. And I think this poem just gives us permission to do that, just to try and balance ourselves on this broken world. And whatever Amy Lowell's intentions when she wrote it, it can show us how poetry speaks to different generations. There's a lot of things that she wouldn't have been aware of at the time. We know that the war ended a couple of months after this. She wouldn't have known that. But we know that perhaps the narrator of the poem was eventually able to take out that afternoon and look at it again and turn it in her fingers, as she says, in the lines. So there is a hopeful message. We know that the war did end and that there is that element of hopefulness. But we also know that war would strike again in 1939. And Amy Lowell didn't know that at the time, and she never did know that because she had died in the 1920s. So for me, that knowledge brings an added poignancy mm. to this poem that could never have been intended by the poet herself. Mm. We might imagine that those little boys in the poem would have grown up to fight in the Second World War, perhaps even losing their lives. So there's that added sense of tragedy and poignancy that we know looking back on it. I wonder if she had that in mind, because you know the mention of the berries oh. is, well, to me, that symbol of blood. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. Um, and also the, the whole thing about nature continuing and everything else being unaware of and uninvolved in the war mm. is really reminiscent of Birdsong, you know, mm, the Sebastian yeah, Falk's novel, which came much later, but mm. how nature is sort of indifferent it is touched by mm. it, but it carries on regardless. It's not that it's not their battle. It's no. not their war. And so when she's talking about the beautiful scene, that reminds me of, of, of that sort of thought. And I wonder if he'd sort of been inspired by that. Mm. You never know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But I think just in general, this shows how poetry can have different messages for different generations. So it's not always about 
precisely what the poet said and was thinking at the time, but how we can reinterpret it and reapproach it from our own situation. There's also in the present day, there's recently been media speculation that we could be heading into war again, or might be within the next decade. And we don't know, because we can't predict the future any more than Amy Lowell could. No, we can just feel uncomfortable at the suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know whether then this poem and other war poetry will take on new meanings for us um, as we go forward and taking our roles in history. Mm. It's an interesting idea as well that actually what was in the writer's mind isn't really particularly relevant to how you read a poem. No. And the way that you would see it one week might be different from how you read it if you read it two years later mm. or even a few weeks later. Yeah. Was um, it was T.S. Eliot who said that a poem was a conversation between the poem and the reader. I think it was one of the poets from that kind ah, of time. Yeah, I, I, I've had lots of discussions about that. Oh God, I need a good quote mm. to have at my fingertips to just go, ha ha. But it's so true, it's so true. That is an absolutely lovely poem. I, I really, it's very moving, isn't it? Yeah. Does it fit all the sort of typical imagist features, would you say? Um, I mean, the, the, the vocabulary being quite straightforward and simple and there being no rhyme scheme or metre... I think she's using a bit more metaphor than perhaps they would. So we've got the houses that are laughing. The idea of being able to put a day into a box is quite abstract. So perhaps she was departing from the strict imagist terms. Good for her. Yeah. Why stick with a label? Caroline said a really good thing when we were just discussing this beforehand about how it didn't really matter what sort of label, whether it's modernist or Mm. imagist or, you know, if she's writing good stuff, that's (laughs) who cares about the label? Yeah. (laughs) If it's it's interesting to a reader and a reader enjoys it, then that's what the point is, isn't it? So on our page for shewrote2.substack.com, we will put some interesting links to more information about Amy Lowell and her life, including a suggestion of biography that I had got my information from earlier. She's wrote lots of poems, so there will be some that will be your favourite. We only had a chance to cover four of them today, but there are... There's 650 poems (laughs) that she wrote in the 12 to 13 years that she was writing poetry, so there's a very broad back catalogue. And... We shall just wish her a happy 150th birthday this year. Happy birthday, Amy. Have a cigar on us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. This has been She Wrote To. Please subscribe and put us on your Spotify and that kind of thing. Thanks very much.